are continuing on in our uh, series on relationships. And today, we're going to talk about sex. So there was a, a TV commercial I've seen recently where the whole idea is that people are terrified about talking about money. So I don't know if you've seen this commercial, but the, uh, the wife asks her husband about their retirement savings and the husband just freezes, like he's so uncomfortable. And all of a sudden he blurts out, I think the world is flat, you know, just to kind of get the attention away. And, and then there's, uh, there's a woman who asks her neighbor, about uh, the mortgage rate that she's gotten for the home. And the woman just kind of laughs nervously before saying, I've got rashes on my body. Do you want to see them? <laughs> and, then, and then the last scene is a, a son who goes to his dad and he says, uh, he's asking about the education savings that his dad has for him when he grows up. And again, the dad just looks at him and he's like, why don't we talk about something else? Like the night that you were conceived. <laughs> Which I'm not, I'm not buying that last one. There's no way that people would rather talk about sex than money. I'm sure that this is the most kind of awkward, uncomfortable topic that we, uh, that we could talk about. And so I just kind of want to acknowledge that right from the start. Some of you are like, we're talking, I would rather talk about rashes on my body than this, actually. Uh, I want to acknowledge that right from the start, that this is uncomfortable and it's difficult and for some of us, we carry some pretty deep shame in this area, and there's been pain and rejection and even trauma. And add on to all of that the fact that when you talk about sex from a moral perspective, like we are today, well, that's about as divisive and controversial as you can get in our day. So you, you put that all together, and it's quite the potent mix of, of discomfort and awkwardness here. But it's an unavoidable reality in, in, our, in our world, in our lives. I mean, God has made us sexed, male and female. And we've got attractions and desires and feelings. And this is an unavoidable aspect of life. And it's something the scriptures speak about from the beginning to the end. The scriptures speak about the reality of sex in, in our lives, in our marriages, our relationships, and so on. And, uh, and it's also, it was an unavoidable reality, of course, in the first century world as well. We sometimes think that here in the 21st century modern West, we have progressed and advanced so much that nobody ever has, has ever been anything like us, you know, that we have discovered all these new things. We've become, you know, these advanced people. But, but in fact, actually, for as tolerant and celebrative as our culture is of all kinds of uh, sexuality, Actually, in the first century world, it, it, was, it was much more. We actually don't even compare yet to the first century Greco-Roman world. And it started right from the top. It started with their view of the gods. So Zeus in uh, Homer's Iliad is quoted as, he's speaking about his overwhelming love for the goddess Hera. And he says that he was more, he's more uh, overwhelmed with love for her than he was when, when I was seized with love of Ixion's wife, nor when I was seized with love of Danae of the fair ankles. Apparently Zeus had an ankle fetish. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I've never really described a woman that way. I, I don't even know if Carolyn has nice ankles or not. Nor, <laughs> nor when I fell for the daughter of far-famed Phoenix, nor in my affair with Semele, nor with Alcmene in Thebes, nor with Demeter, nor when I loved glorious Leto. Whoa, take it easy, Zeus, hey? Like... There's a lot going on there. 
I mean, the gods in the, in the Greco-Roman myths, they, they committed any sex act imaginable. Uh, they were not chaste in any way. And it filtered down to, the, to their leaders, to the emperors. Uh, I read one scholar say that if half of what was written about Nero, who was the emperor at, uh, during Paul's time, if half of what was written about him was true, his depravity in this realm was beyond description. And it filtered down to the everyday individual as well. Uh, I took a course years ago in kind of the Greco-Roman world, and the professor was talking about Pompeii, this uh, Roman city that had been covered in volcanic ash, which preserved everything. So when it was excavated, you kind of got this incredible glimpse of the first century world. And they're doing these excavations, and to just be totally blunt, they found phalluses, depictions of phalluses everywhere. Like, it was crazy. Like, it was on the door frames of homes. You'd be walking, walking along, and there, and there it is, right? And, and in, in shrines in homes, in public places. I mean, it was, it was everywhere, everywhere you could, you could look at. Um, Cicero, a famous philosopher, said, If there is anyone who thinks that youth should be forbidden affairs, even with courtesans, those, those would be prostitutes, well, that's contrary not only to the license of this age, but also to the custom and concessions of our ancestors. For when was this not a common practice? Sister was saying, look, how dare anyone say that there should be any restraints on, on sex? Because that's never been something that, that we do. You know, get sexual pleasure wherever you can, whenever you can. That's not a quote from me, by the way. Don't take that out of context, you know, like chop that out of this sermon and be like, this is what Pastor Craig said. Uh, <laughs> that, was, that was the cultural mindset. That was, that was the first century world. I mean, when you, when you see the gods do it, when you see your emperors do it and everyone else, I mean, it, it was just, it was, it was everywhere. This culture was saturated in sex. And so Paul, mid-first century, he travels to the Greek city of Corinth, and he plants this church there. And all of these people, some of the culturally elite, but also many of the, the commoners, they come to faith in Jesus. And as often happens when people come to faith in Jesus, there are some things that change dramatically and pretty quickly. But then there are other areas that take a lot longer to 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 be transformed. And it seems that for the Corinthians, their view of sex and the body was one area that had not been transformed by the gospel. And so the, the situation, it seems, in first century Corinth is that you've got some of the members of the church in Corinth, probably, the, probably uh, some of the men, who are insisting on their right to go sleep with prostitutes. Uh, again, this is, their, this is their cultural background. Everybody in their culture would say this is fine. Cicero, you know, you, you heard what he said. And so this is, this is kind of, their, they're asserting their rights, their freedom to do this. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6 is that he, he kind of gives them a crash course in a, in a biblical and theological vision for sex. And that's what we need as well today. Because actually, I think our, our culture is, ra rather than progressing, in some ways we're regressing to, to a first century kind of Greco-Roman view of, of things. And, and that's kind of permeated the church as well. And so what we need even today is to get back to that holistic biblical vision of sex. So I'm not going to get into a ton of specifics. We're going to kind of do a bit more big picture overview, which I think is what Paul does here. But that's, that's where we're going today. 
So let's pray and then get into 1 Corinthians 6. I'm so grateful, God, for the songs that we've been singing this morning. Just inviting your Holy Spirit into this place to speak to us, to soften our hearts, that we would make room for you. Because we come with all kinds of baggage to this discussion. And you know all that, God. You know each one here, each one listening online. You know you know what they've experienced. You know what they have believed. And Lord, we sang before about laying down every lie, every doubt, every burden, every crown. Lord, we've believed lies about, about this. And so I pray, God, today that as we open up your word, I just want to ask, Lord, for your voice to be heard so clearly. Not for my voice, Lord. I, I, I want to just, I want to submit to you. I want to submit to your word here. And I pray that that would be true of all of us today, Lord. That you would have your way. That your will would be done here, Lord, as we talk about this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, we're in 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to start in verse 12. <clears throat> I have the right to do anything you say. But not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So the Corinthian justification for their sexual ethics seems to boil down to two main points, two things that they are saying. So in the original Greek, you don't get quotation marks, but most agree that verse 12 and 13 have these two quotes from the Corinthians. They've written these things to Paul. This is kind of what they're saying, and Paul's going to respond to them. So the first of those is that I have the right to do anything. That's kind of, that's, that's, that's what they're saying. Uh, and, and they might have even gotten this idea from Paul because Paul would speak, he would teach about Christian liberty, that followers of Jesus are no longer subject to laws about kosher food or ritual purity or sacred special days, those kinds of things. So it could be that they took his teaching there and said, hey, we could do whatever we want, including in sex. But it's also likely that this kind of thinking was present among the cultural elites in Corinth. In Corinth, in Greek society, it was a sign of high status. It was a sign that you had made it when you could get away with anything, when you could sleep with anyone, 
young, old, male, female, that was a sign that you were of high status, when you could exert yourself in that way. People of low status were the ones who had to deal with restraints. And so it could be that it's especially the elite in Corinth who are saying, we have the right to do this. We've got this status. We've got this position. We can do whatever we want. And so Paul's first response, he's got two responses to that. The first thing he says is, even if that's true, even if you have the right to do everything, not everything is beneficial. And this goes back to our first sermon in this series about freedom. Do you remember that? We talked about freedom and autonomy and how the question in the kingdom of God is never, what am I entitled to? What am I, what am I technically allowed to do? The question is always, what will build others up? How can I love others? How can I make Jesus known? This obsession with autonomy, with what I deserve, which is so characteristic of our world, has no place in the family of God because it's not about you. It's about the kingdom. It's about building others up. So Paul says, you're asking the wrong question. You're making the wrong statement. And the, and the second thing he says is, again, even if that's true, that you have this right, he says, I will not be mastered by anything. And this is a huge statement because Paul is challenging them on their definition of freedom. See, in our culture today too, freedom is understood as being the absence of any restraints, any limits, any restrictions, anything from the outside kind of being imposed on you, right? That's what, that's what freedom means. But Paul says that, that, that uh, idea of freedom is actually slavery, when you are bound to all your desires, when you're not able to say no to anything, you're actually experiencing slavery to those destructive, lustful desires. And so Paul says actual freedom is the freedom to say no, the freedom to be self-controlled, the freedom to say no to a bunch of other things so that you can say yes to the things that truly matter, that are truly good. And so this whole definition of freedom, he says, you guys have the wrong idea. It's not about, what every, about being able to do anything you want. It's, it's about being able to say no to certain things so you can do the thing that God really wants you to do. So that's kind of what he, how he responds to those two things. You have the right to do everything? Well, not quite. Their second quote, Paul spends a lot more time on. And so we will as well. Here's what they say. They say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. So what's the idea here? The, uh, the implication for sex is that the body is for sex, and the sex is for body, and, and the sex, sex is, for, sex is for the body. The idea here is that sex is purely physical. It's just it's just a sensual pleasure. It's just an interaction between two physical bodies, nothing more. And again, this is, this is something that a lot of people in our culture think as well, that, that sex is merely just a, a physical encounter. Uh, as one of many examples, the Rolling Stone a few years ago quoted a musician who said, sex is just one piece of body touching another piece of body. What a beautiful statement, hey? Woo, so deep, so romantic. I mean, write a song about that right there. <laughs> but that's kind of the mindset. It's just, it's just a physical thing. And, and for the Corinthians, the key is that God is going to destroy everything that's, that's physical. This is kind of what they're thinking. That the body is, is a, a temporary thing. 
that we are essentially souls that just happen to be trapped in a physical shell for this period of time on earth, but ultimately we'll escape that and our bodies will be doomed to destruction. So what does it matter what you do with your body? What matters is what lasts forever. Now there's part of that that maybe sounds right, right? There's part of that that, that almost sounds spiritual, that almost sounds, well, maybe that's true. Uh, I even read a Catholic a supposedly Catholic feminist who uh, said, God really doesn't care what you do with another person's body. What he cares about is how you treat them as a person. Now, if I had a buzzer in front of me, I would just be like, oh, that's communion. I would just be, I would just be hitting it like, eh, eh, it's wrong, it's so wrong. Because the, in, the, in the Bible, these two things aren't separate. Like, like your, your body and who you are as a person, you are. You, you are embodied by nature. You are embodied. These aren't like things that you can just separate out like this. See, the, that way of thinking, it's, um, it's not Christian thinking. It's Platonic thinking. You know Plato? Not the children's clay stuff, but like the, the Greek philosopher, right? Uh, Plato, to put it really simply, taught this. He taught that there was this dichotomy and that all that mattered was the immortal soul and that the body is just made for pleasure and it really, whatever you do with the body doesn't affect that immortal soul. And so it really, like, it's, it's, it's fine. You can do whatever you want with the body. Again, that's Plato. That's not the Bible. See, Paul and the scriptures as a whole teach us that the body matters. The body matters deeply to God. And so it matters deeply what you do with your body, which means that sex is not just a physical act. Sex is a deeply theological act with deep spiritual meaning. And Paul shows how that works by looking at the story of our bodies and sex from the beginning to the end, beginning, middle, and end. So that's what we're gonna look at. We're gonna look at how Paul kind of uncovers those three aspects of the story of our, of our bodies, essentially. Let's start with the beginning how the, the beginning of the story of our, of our bodies and sex kind of plays into this. Whenever you want to understand the significance of something, it's always good to kind of go back to the start. So when uh, we bought our townhome six years ago, uh, we needed to do a lot of renovations on it because it was, it was pretty rough. It was like 1970s and... Uh, it looked like it. it uh, not, not much had changed. There were some wild colors in there as well. That's not a big deal, but we had like a pink room. Our bedroom was like a dark forest green. And as you can see, our watch well, that doesn't really show it. That was a snot green, with the, the kitchen. And that, I know that's not an official title of the color, but you know what I mean, right? That's, that was kind of the color. So we needed to do a lot of work to it. And one of the things we wanted to do was take out this wall because this wall kind of separated the kitchen from the living room and the dining room. It made the place feel a lot smaller. That wall really seemed like a nuisance. I wanted to just take a sledgehammer to it and knock the thing down. That's about the only thing in construction that I'm capable of. But, uh, but people told us, no, no, you have to go get a permit for these things. What? All right, you gotta go get a permit. And, and then the district says, well, you need to make sure that this is like not a load-bearing wall. And so you go to an engineer and they look at the original plans and they look at the wall and they go, yeah, it's a load-bearing wall. And so if you're gonna take it down, you need to make sure that you are doing something to keep that function going, to make sure that your second story is, is supported. 
And the point is, we needed to go back to the original plans to figure out what this wall was there for. And if we had just kind of knocked the thing out, we would have caused significant structural damage to the home. And so you got to go back to the beginning. What, what do we find in the scriptures about the original significance of sex? Why God made it? Why he made us this way? And one aspect, and, and sex is so much more than this, but, but one aspect of it, of course, in Genesis is childbearing. That, that sex, I don't know if you knew this, uh, if you didn't, I, I hate to break it to you, but that's how babies are made. And so that's, that's part of the picture. But that points, although that's only a very small, that's a, a small part, that does point to a relationship that God has intended sex for. So Paul, in verse 16, quotes Genesis 2. He's talking about how in sex, two people become united as one flesh. And he quotes Genesis 2, which says the two will become one flesh. If you go back, go back to Genesis 2, you get the bigger context where God has created woman uh, out of man. Now you've got man and woman, two kind of corresponding halves of humanity. And we read that, that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So sex, right at the beginning, is placed in the context of this one flesh relationship. And Jesus does the, makes the same connection. In, in Mark chapter 10, some Pharisees ask him about marriage and divorce, and he goes back to Genesis 2. And he says, well, this is what it was said from the beginning. This is, this is the foundation and, uh, and he even says at the end, what, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Again, connecting sex in Genesis 2, the two flesh becoming one with the relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. So the, the idea here is that sex is the physical representation, the physical embodiment of a relationship where two people have joined together and made one new life reflecting the glory of God. Nancy Piercy uh, has written an incredible book called Love Thy Body, and this is how she puts it. She says, common phrases for having sex indicate that it's the most you can do sexually. It's going all the way or getting to home plate or sealing the deal. And that's why it belongs only in a relationship where you can go all the way on all other levels as well. When you commit to another person legally, economically, socially, and spiritually. You see, sex is one part, the physical part, of a whole package kind of relationship, a union of covenant marriage. That sex is just one part of that whole kind of picture of unity between two people. It's the physical embodiment, the physical representation of that relationship. That's what it's made for. That's what God intended for it. Which means also, by the way, that there's a word here, not only about sex outside of marriage, but also pornography and masturbation. Because pornography is really just taking another person and making them an ends to the, a means to the end of my own personal satisfaction. It's, it's making somebody an object to satisfy my own desires. But as we've just seen in the Bible, sex is not about a feeling or a sensation 
or, or some kind of personal satisfaction. Sex is about a relationship. It's about a relationship between two people. It's not about just you doing something on your own. It's about two people who have joined together in all of these other ways. And one, one other note about this before we move on. I talked about how sex is, is given by God. It's a gift from him. And we have a relationship with him as our creator. And so it actually matters that we honor the intentions of the one who gave this gift for, for our relationship with him. I've, I think I've used this analogy before, but imagine if I painted a beautiful painting and I gave it to you as a housewarming gift. This is a purely hypothetical situation because my art skills haven't advanced since I was seven years old. And I was not a prodigy at seven years old either. But you just have to imagine. Imagine I painted a beautiful painting and I gave it to you. The next time I go to your house, it would honor me, it would honor our relationship if I came over to your house and I saw that picture hanging on the wall, right? That's kind of what I intended. That's what I hoped. And if you're hanging it on the wall, I, I feel honored in our relationship. Now, what if I come to your house, though, and instead you have placed my painting by the front door uh, on the ground so that people can wipe their feet off on it as a doormat before walking into the home? You're using the gift that I gave you. You are using the gift, but I'm not going to feel very honored by that. That might be the last time I go to your house, actually. Um, obviously, that, that's, that's not the intention that I gave it for. And so it matters in our relationship with God, that we understand his intention and that we honor it, that we use it the way that he intended for it. So that's, that's the beginning of the story. Let, let's talk now about the end of the story of our bodies and sex. This comes out in verses 13 and 14, where Paul says the, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. The idea here is that if you know where something is going, if you know what the destination of something is supposed to be, then you are going to head in that direction, obviously. I read a story about a flight a few years ago that uh, they took off from London in the morning and they landed in Edinburgh, Scotland, which I've heard Edinburgh is a beautiful place. It's a great place to visit. However, nobody was intending on going to Edinburgh, Scotland that morning. The plane was supposed to go to Dusseldorf, Germany, which, by the way, is like the coolest German name for a city, I think, right? Like Dusseldorf, it's just a lot of fun to say. You should try it sometime. So they landed in Dusseldorf instead. What had happened was that the wrong flight plan had been filed and the pilots didn't realize it. I guess they never looked down and were like, there's no water there. That's a bit strange. And so they ended up 800 kilometers in the wrong direction. And uh, one, one person on the flight tweeted his, uh, his frustration with this. And he said, while an interesting concept, I don't think anyone on board has signed up for this mystery travel lottery. <laughs> I think it's a kind of a cool idea, right? You just get on a plane, you don't know where it's going to go. But if you really need to get somewhere, this is going to be frustrating. You, you need to head in the direction you, you want to end up in. Simple concept. So here's the point with bodies. The key question is, where is your body heading towards? What's the final destination for your body? Because again, this was the whole point for the Corinthians. The final destination of the body is destruction. So it really doesn't matter 
what you do with it because it has nothing to do with your eternity. But again, that's platonic thinking. And I I, I don't want to hear you talking about eternity like Platonists. If you do, I'm going to have to break a plate over your head. I want to hear you talking about eternity like a Christian. If you've heard me preach for any period of time, especially on Easter, I hope you know that there's a big problem with that way of thinking, as if heaven is just up above the clouds somewhere where our invisible souls are floating around. The Bible is clear, and Paul is clear right here, that God raised Jesus from the dead, not metaphorically, not not as an idea, but bodily, physically, literally raised Jesus from the dead. And the Bible is also equally clear that the same thing that happened to Jesus is going to happen to all of his people. All who trust in him will also be raised bodily, physically, literally, for eternity. And so these bodies, Jesus' body and ours, there is obviously some discontinuity because these new bodies are no longer subject to decay or death. And and Jesus' body even seems to be doing some different things and shifting and changing and so on. But there is also, there's also continuity. It is still a physical body. That's, that's, that's our eternity. That's where we're headed, according to the scriptures. So again, to, to bring this to bear on this whole topic of bodies and, and sex, if God has placed such value in physical bodies that, he, that he's going to raise us in them, then it matters what we do with them now. They're not just accidents. Our bodies are not just things that you just kind of throw away and discard at the end. Our bodies, in some sense, are our eternal home. We are going to be embodied in eternity. And so again, it matters what we do with them because of that. And that brings me to the the third aspect of this, which is the middle of the story. So here we are. We're living in between creation and the resurrection. We're here in in this world with all of the difficulties and challenges in these bodies. So what what does Paul have to say about that? He's actually got a lot to say about it. but, But he says it particularly from a Christian perspective. What he says in this passage is uh, it makes sense if you are a follower of Jesus. Which, by the way, is, is one reason I think it's, it's problematic for us as Christians to think we're supposed to impose our Christian sexual ethic on a society that doesn't actually really want it. Because the reason that we believe what we do about sexual ethics is, is because of Jesus. But if you are a follower of Jesus, Paul's got some pretty powerful things to say here. Let's look at some of them. He says in verse 15, do you not know that your bodies right now, your bodies are members of Christ? Now, we might be more familiar with this language of the church being the body of Christ, that the church together is the physical representation of Christ in this world. You read a lot about that in 1 Corinthians 12, a few chapters later. But what Paul does here is he takes it to another level. He makes it way more personal in a way that maybe a lot of us don't really understand. He says that your individual body right now is a member of Christ. 
And the implication of this, and this is the huge thing, the implication of this is that whatever you do with your body, including sexually, in some sense, you are bringing Jesus into that act. As a follower of Jesus, you are bringing Jesus into that because your body is a member of Christ. That's what Paul says right afterwards. He says that if you unite yourself with a prostitute, you're actually taking a a member of Christ in doing that. Now, does that change things? I mean, honestly, if 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 you were conscious of the fact that whatever kind of sexual act you engaged in, that you were actually bringing Jesus into that, would that change what you do? Would that change how you act? Paul brings this out a little bit more in verse 17. He, he says, whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. And he, and he says in verse 19 that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know we, uh, we, we're familiar with this language. We use this language often. Have you ever stopped to really consider how crazy this is? That if your faith is in Jesus, your body is a temple, a home for the presence of the almighty living God who created the universe, who is Lord over history. He dwells in you. And in this way, you have been united to Jesus. And so again, when you, when you do anything in the body, including engaging in some kind of sexual act, You're not doing this with God kind of distant, just observing, oh no, look what he's up to again. He is right there with you. His presence dwells within you. His spirit is in you. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a member of Christ. And so it matters so, so much what you do. And Paul ramps this up to this this kind of emphatic statement at the end, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. You are not your own. I can't think of many things that are more countercultural than that today because it is dogma. It is the unquestionable consensus of the day that your body is your own. Now, that's why our culture thinks that any teaching about sexual restraint is so evil because nobody should be able to tell you anything about what you can or cannot do with your body. That's kind of the idea. But Paul says, as a follower of Jesus, you are not your own because your body is a member of Christ, because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, because you have been united to him. Well, no, actually, you you, you belong to him. He saved you. He rescued you. He's placed his Holy Spirit in you. He's essentially claimed you. And so you belong to him. He's Lord of your life. He's Lord of your body. You don't just do whatever you want with it because you belong to him. So what do we do with all of this? How do we we respond to this? Paul, at the very end, kind of sums it up. And he says, therefore, on the basis of everything that he has said so far, he says, therefore, honor God with your bodies. That's kind of the big final conclusion. On the basis of everything, honor God with your bodies. And I think this means two things especially. One thing it means is that we honor God with our bodies when we celebrate the gift of sex in 
the context he intended it for, in the relationship he intended it for. You know, one chapter later, chapter seven, we get uh, into a, a different issue in Corinth. So it seems that there were other people in Corinth who were practicing what we could call celibate marriage, where they had adopted this view of spirituality that said sex is inherently unspiritual. And so truly spiritual people aren't going to do that. They're not going to get, they're not going to be having sex. And, and so they kind of had declared themselves off limits to their spouses. So probably what you had in Corinth was you had men who were saying, hey, we're free to go see prostitutes and women saying, hey, husbands, you can't touch this. Da, na, na, na. Anyways, <laughs> so, so Carolyn, Carolyn told me beforehand, she's like, Craig, for this sermon, you shouldn't ad lib anything. You should just stick, you should stick exactly with what you wrote. You shouldn't, you shouldn't be spontaneous with anything. That was very much just a spot. That was totally spontaneous. I did not quote, I did not plan on quoting MC Hammer this morning. <laughs> anyway, so that's the situation in Corinth. And, and so for, yeah, you can see how one thing causes the other and vice versa, Right? But in the end, there's this common ground between the two because both are profoundly anti-body. Both these positions believe that, that our, our, our lives sexually have nothing to do with our relationship with God. They've just taken it in, in two very opposite directions. And so what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 is each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Do not deprive each other. He's saying, look, this, this is the context. Celebrate it. Enjoy it in this context. Sometimes we as Christians are guilty of going too far in the opposite direction and kind of thinking that sex is this like dirty, unspiritual thing. In the right context, it is profoundly sacred. Like we said, it is theological. It is spiritual. So we, we want to celebrate that. You know, I, I want to say here, sometimes we think that God's, God's rules are um, they're, they're, they're arbitrary. And he's really just trying to be a killjoy, right? He's really just trying to keep us from having any fun. But the truth is, if you, I mean, it just, it's just the fact that sex works best in the covenant of, of marriage, in that relationship, that everything outside of it, you watch these movies, you watch these shows, and, and all the complication and all the brokenness, so much of it comes. It's, it's just like, look, if you just did this God's way, if you just stuck with God's plan, things would go so much better. Right? Like he, he is actually good in his intentions, in his purposes, in what he has given us. He actually does this because he wants to bless us, not because he wants to take joy away from us. So celebrate it in this, in this context. And I, I do want to say too, I know there are people here who would say, well, I'm not married. I'm single. So what, what do I do with these, with these attractions, with these feelings, with these desires? And, and that's that's where this gets pretty heavy. And say, so on the one hand, take that, that, that desire for sex and, and, and go even deeper with it. Like, figure out what, what is this actually pointing to? Because I think at the core of it, it means that we as humans are relational beings. We, we long for connection. We long for, for unity with others. And, and so seek that. I, I think for people who are, who are single, who don't have a family, it's so important that you have those strong friendships, strong community, that you seek those kinds of connections. But I'll also say that I think for, for everybody who follows Jesus, the calling is to, 
deny yourself, take up the cross and follow him. And that's gonna look different for everyone. Everyone's got different ways that they're going to need to lay things down and, and bear the cross. And, and for some, that, that's costly. It's quite costly to lay those desires down in some ways and say, I'm not going to seek the fulfillment of that particular desire. That can be costly. But the promise of Jesus in the gospels is that he's enough. That he is enough. That his kingdom is that good. That it's worth selling everything you've got to get. His promise is that if you lay things down for his sake, that he is going to give you life abundant, life overflowing. You can trust him on this promise. He's good. The second way here that we, we honor God with our bodies, Paul says, is to flee from sexual immorality, to flee from it. That's strong language. I mean, Paul is pretty clear here that sexual immorality is a serious sin, that it is a sin against your own body. There's something unique about this. And so he says, like, like don't, don't mess around with it. Run from it. The, uh, the story that I think of and maybe comes to mind for you too is the story of Joseph in Egypt. Joseph was the son of Jacob, also known as Israel, sold into slavery in Egypt. He's a servant in Potiphar's home and uh, Potiphar's wife had the hots for him, big time. And Genesis even tells us that Joseph was well-built and handsome. The guy was driving the Egyptian ladies crazy. Uh, and Potiphar's wife badly wanted to, to sleep with him. And so she would, she would beg him day after day, come, come to bed with me, come to bed with me. And Joseph kept on saying, no, I'm not going to sin against Potiphar. I'm not going to sin against God. One day, uh, Potiphar's wife was so overcome with lust, she just grabs a hold of Joseph's cloak and is demanding that, she come, that he come to bed with her. And I mean, she's just throwing himself at him. Like sex is so available and accessible to him in this moment. But instead, Joseph just takes off, runs out of the house, sprints out of there, leaving her clutching his cloak in desperation. But he just gets out of there as quick as he can. And Paul is saying that's the kind of mindset that God's people need to have in this world to flee from sexual immorality. A lot of people, even if they're not going and having sex outside of marriage, they're making room. They're making room for not this, not for what we were singing about before, but for other stuff. They're, they're flirting. They're, they're playing around on the corners of this, right? Giving, giving some footholds here or there. Paul says, flee. Have nothing to do with it. Um, and, and that might feel really difficult because in our culture, it's, it's everywhere, right? Like it's popping up on your computer. It's in the gym. It's at the beach. It's on dating apps, whatever. It's everywhere. But remember that in first century Corinth, it was everywhere. Everywhere you looked. I mean, it was very available. There were no taboos. There was no shame. There were no moral boundaries. And yet Paul says in that context, and I think you would say here too, you just, you, you have to flee from it. You're going to have to make an intentional decision to run from that. All of us, married or not, the temptations are there. Run from it. Now, I don't know how all of this hits you. You know, maybe you're, you're sitting there and you're just so offended right now. Like, I, last time I'm ever going to the bridge church. I, I hope not, but you might. You might be there. You might be somebody who just needs to think about this more because, you know, there's, there's stuff here that's thought-provoking. You need some more time with it. 
It could be that you've heard for a while that Christians, you know, are supposed to save sex for marriage, but you didn't really understand why. And, and maybe today, and I would be really grateful if this has happened, maybe some pieces have kind of fallen into place. Maybe, maybe that makes a little bit more sense today. And maybe you're feeling convicted this morning. Maybe you're looking at your life and you know that you have misused the gift of God, that you have not honored God with your bodies, that you have not fled from sexual immorality, but instead have lived in it and embraced it. And maybe, maybe this morning, you're feeling that conviction. And I'm not gonna tell you not to feel convicted. I'm not gonna tell you not to feel guilty because actually guilt in a healthy way can bring about change and Holy Spirit-empowered repentance. But if that's you, if you're here this morning and you've heard this and you're going, yes, I have done wrong and I want to do right, then I've got really good news for you. Right before this passage, in the few verses before, Paul talks about wrongdoers. And, and he, and he kind of goes through a bunch of different ways that people could be wrongdoers, including in, in various forms of sexual immorality. And he says in verse 9, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? If, if you're devoted to these things without any desire for change or repentance, there's no place in the kingdom of God. I mean, if, that, if that's you this morning, if you're saying, yeah, I've, I've sinned, I've not honored God with my body, and I'm totally fine with that. I don't think I need to change it all. I actually don't have anything. I, I don't really have any words for you about that. There's, there's, nothing, there, there's not really good news until until you have a desire for change. But if you do, if you do have a desire to turn and to live a life that honors the Lord, then there's good news. Because in Paul in verse 11 says, this is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Verse 20, Paul says, you were bought at a price. See, Jesus died for you and for me when we were sinners. When there was nothing lovable about us, he loved us. When we were stuck in a pit, dead in our transgressions, he displayed his grace to us and he lifted us up. And so when you receive him by faith and when you receive his forgiveness, Paul says you have been washed. Those old garments that you used to wear, that were so stained and filthy in so many ways. He has washed them clean. He has given you new clothes to wear. You are, you are pure. You are forgiven. You are washed clean. He says you, you were sanctified. This is a word that means you have been made holy. You've been set apart by God. He declares you to be a saint. He is at work in you by his Holy Spirit. He has deemed you, you worthy of, of, of having his Holy Spirit dwell in you. And he is making you more like Jesus. Maybe it doesn't feel like it. Maybe you, you're stumbling and falling, but he's doing this work and he will carry it on to completion on the day Jesus comes again. And Paul says, you were justified. You were at one time condemned to eternal death because of your sin, but Jesus has borne that price. He paid that cost so that you could be declared innocent, 
That's God's declaration of you, not because of anything you have done, not because of what you've done in the past, but because of what Jesus did for you, because of his great love for you. So this morning, no matter who you were, no matter how you've identified yourself in the past, no matter what shame you have borne, no matter what, what acts you look back on and are filled with regret, this is God's declaration to you that in Christ, you are clean. You are sanctified. You are justified. You belong to him. You're no longer identified by what you've done or what you feel or whatever. You are identified by his great love for you. And so live in that joy. Live in that identity. And let your whole life, including how you, how you carry yourself, conduct yourself with your bodies sexually, may it all be an act of response, of gratitude to the God who died for you. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer this morning is for those who are feeling the weight of all of this right now for various reasons. Maybe it's because of their past. Maybe it's because of their present. And I thank you, Lord, that your grace is sufficient to cover over all sins and to send them away from us as far as the east is from the west. Jesus, that at the cross, you bore our shame and our guilt so that when we come to you with soft hearts, you take that shame and that guilt and you take it to the cross. It's gone. I thank you, Lord, for these words that we have been sanctified, that we have been justified. I thank you, Lord, for this identity that we have in you as a saint, as a holy one, not as a sinner, not as a sexually immoral person, not as this, not as that, but our identity as a saint. And so I pray, Lord, that you would impress that on these hearts today, that for all, Lord, who hear your word and seek repentance and change, that they would know, Lord, that it's done, that you have forgiven them, that they are washed clean. And I pray, Lord, that we would honor you with our bodies, because our bodies matter so much. I pray that we would honor you, Lord, as a church with our bodies, and that the world would see that there's a different way, a different way of living in the body, a way that's good, that's true, that's beautiful. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us at the Bridge Church in this way. If God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe that he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.